Morning, church. All right. We are in Romans chapter 12. I am, uh, just, just so you know, I am not good at titling things. Right? Like, I'm, that's not my thing. Like, I can get everything ready to go. And it was, I don't know what time it was last night. It was probably 9 o'clock. Sermon had been done for a while. Leah had read it to try to figure out where to, where to go to, to get songs and all of that. And I go, honey, I still don't have a title. She's like, I don't know. And so just be aware. So I'm titling this, though, I'm supposed to love who? Because Paul's here digging into these things. He's, it's really chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Romans. If, if we think about the book of Romans, and we've kind of talked about it this way, is, is it feels like it's almost like a systematic theology. Like that Paul is walking us through, starting with chapter 1, how to be followers of Christ. Right? He, he's walking us through that. Then we start to get from chapter 11, where the, the, the heady theology, scholarly stuff starts to end and we start to get into practical living, right? What does that mean? What does that look like as you're a follower of Jesus Christ? And, and really, chapter 12 and 13 feels like it's almost Paul's written commentary on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 and through 7. And, and so as we get into that, that's kind of what we're going to be doing. Now, I'm, I'm going to start in here with Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through um, chapter 13, verse 14. And I know Chris got to 14, 15, and 16 last week. And it's not like, no, Chris did a fantastic job. That's not what I'm saying here at all. It would have put me starting a sermon in the middle of a paragraph. I was like, that feels weird to me. So I'm coming back just a couple of verses just so we can take a look at those in context with the rest of that paragraph. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. If not, it's on the screen. Let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, no, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Starting in chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you are wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Besides this, you know, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this word today. I thank you for uh, being powerful and, and applicable to our lives. I thank you that, that we can take a look at this. And as we dive into it, as we study it, as we, we, we seek to learn from it, that you will, will give us application how to live it, that you will guide us to living the life that call, Paul is calling us to, that the word of God is calling us to. Father, I pray that as, as we go through this sermon that you would put me aside and that it be you, uh, that you would just speak to our hearts Challenge us, convict us, and draw us close to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So here we are, Romans chapter 12 and 13. Like I said earlier, this is Paul giving us some practical advice on how to live out the Christian life. Our, our passage today opens up with Paul emphasizing blessing those who persecute you. And he says it twice in the same verse, right? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Why do you think Paul would spend so much time emphasizing blessing our enemies and showing them love? Right? That's a weird thing to think about. Well, maybe it's because Jesus gave some emphasis to that, right? We saw it in, it shows up in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, but it also shows up in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. And Jesus is speaking there and he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Right? This is the epitome of grace and mercy that was given to you by Jesus. As lost people, you showed nothing but disdain for all things godly. But you were still loved and mercy was still shown to you. To be Christ-minded would to mean that, that you would do the same to those who treat you the same way. This is gospel love. This is what it is. This, this is how the world sees Jesus Christ living in you. They see him living in you this way. They, then this opens up the opportunity for you 
to proclaim the gospel in their lives. And Paul continues teaching us how to interact, right? In verse 15, there's this call to rejoice with those who rejoice and and weep with those who weep. Now, this rejoicing with those who rejoice seems really easy, right? Until that's the person that you don't care much for. We all have that person. It's not that we hate them. We just would rather not have a meal with them maybe or the, the, there's those people out there right? I, I think we heard somebody in, in small group this morning say there are people that i will walk across the street just to to just make sure that i'm in self-control because that's one of the gifts of the spirit and so like you, you know you, you have those people in your lives right the other one is sometimes it's really hard to rejoice with someone who has something that you kind of wanted Right when 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 somebody's like, wow, that, that jealousy creeps in. Right, um, Leah had a professor at Southern Seminary, Dr. Randy Stinson, that he he tells his students this story about how he would train and teach his children to rejoice with those who rejoice. Right by him going on speaking engagements and traveling events around the country, and he would only pick up one souvenir for one kid out of the household of about five or six kids. Daddy couldn't afford, I mean, he's a professor. He couldn't afford to go out and buy a gift for all those kids, but he would pick out one good souvenir from wherever he went, share it with one, one of the children. Now, that child rotated each trip. It wasn't like it was daddy playing favorites, but he would sit them down and, and talk about having them cheer on the one who got the gift and being excited from teaching them to do that at a young age, Right? That's, that's an important thing for us to think about, to, to teach ourselves and to teach others to rejoice and be glad when somebody else has been blessed and we see them rejoicing. Weeping with those who weep is this important part of showing love to those around us. Oh my goodness. Like some of the, some of the times in my own personal life when I have felt the most comfort have been when I've had people in my life just sit there and be sad with me. Right? Just sit and be sad with me. When, when, when mom and dad had their accident and dad had died and, and mom was in the hospital, so, some folks that just loved on our family by just sitting and being sad. You know, those, those are moments that are indelible in your mind. Indelible, they just don't go away, right? They didn't say anything. They didn't ask me to say anything. They just were present in your grief. Those are powerful moments. And we can all probably think of times like that in our life. But it's interesting to note that Paul writes this stuff immediately after he commands the believer to bless their enemies. This isn't just a command for believers to act this way to other believers. (sighs) Darn it right? That's not how we want to be. Like, oh, this is a command for us to really extend that out. This isn't a command for you to just show this kind of care to your friends and to your loved ones. This is a call for you to do this to those who persecute you and those who are your enemies. To rejoice with your enemy and also love them and weep for them when they hurt instead of taking a small amount of pleasure in that. That's unworldly, 
right? That's, that's something only God can do. But this is how you bless them. This is how you live in harmony with them. You humble yourself. You show them the love and kindness they have missed showing you. You show them love and kindness that is typically reserved for family. And in doing this, you should have the hope that God is working in you to open those up who persecute you to the saving message of Jesus Christ in their lives. And Paul reemphasizes this in verses 17 through 21. You are called to allow the Lord to deal justice to those who are your enemies and to those who persecute you. You are called to strive to live peaceably with all. Now, this is tough. There, there, there are people that just, they're like salt in a wound or sandpaper instead of a Band-Aid. But, but, but remember here, this is the result of being a new creation in, in Christ our Lord. This all goes back, right? This all reflects back to what Paul says to us about living for Christ in, in, in chapter 2 of verse 12. Or I said that backwards. Verse 2 of chapter 12, sorry. What Paul's describing here is a result of the Holy Spirit renewing your mind so that you may do the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's what's taking place here. Now I want to caution you here though. There are some folks that get really, really excited about verse 20. And, and he's, he's quoting some Psalms, he's quoting some Proverbs here that talk about this. They get really excited about it though, right? Especially that second part. Right, verse, verse 20 says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. All right. <laughs> this is where the motivation truly counts. This is where what's behind your heart really matters here. Right? As Jesus loves those who despise him, he does so with a compassionate remorse, right? He's, he's hurting that they hate the things of God. It's not a pleasurable, hey, I'm killing that sucker with kindness today, right? You got to be careful of that. Your motivation here matters because if your motives are wrong and how you treat those who treat you poorly, you're really no better than they are. And Christ's love is not shown through you. Right? I want you to ask yourself the following questions kind of about this little section here. Do I show true, genuine love? Am I growing in affection and honor towards other people? Am I truly repaying evil with good? And am I seeking to overcome evil with God's goodness? And will those who persecute me see a gospel difference in how I behave? Or will they see me as one of those hypocritical churchgoers? Because if we're not doing this from the proper motivation, if we're not allowing the Holy Spirit in our lives to live this out, that last question is what people see. And that's tough. And so Paul here is, has been talking to us about our interpersonal relationships and, and how we do that with, with not just people within the church, but with people of the world who see us. 
But, but then in chapter 13, as he kind of moves on, this is all, like I said, kind of one thing uh, as he moves on. He's moving from this interpersonal interactions and our interpersonal relationships and then how we react to the government and how Christians should interact with those governmental systems that are in place. Now, I'm going to say this, and, and this is really important. Your politics are to be informed and influenced by your biblical scholarship and study. Your politics should not inform and influence your biblical scholarship and study. What we do in this world, in a system where we have some say in our government, should be informed by the time we spend in Scripture. Not the other way around. The world is seeing this. And they're seeing many, many people claiming Jesus Christ getting this backwards. Don't do it. Because we've got we to take some time here to remember some things. As Paul is, is writing this letter to the church in Rome, and as the church in Rome receives this letter and hears it read to them, things were not easy for Christians. Right? Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews. There was about a nine to ten year period in Rome that if you were Jewish, you were kicked out of the city of Rome, and really much of Italy at that time, right? And he kicked out not just the Jews, but he also kicked out the Jewish followers of Christ. Claudius dies in 54 AD. Jews who had made Rome their home began, or before the exile, began to move back. The problem with that was, is Nero is who succeeded Claudius as emperor. Nero is known for brutal religious persecution. It, it, we, we think about this. Nero's the guy, when we start talking about throwing Christians before the lions, Nero's the guy who started that. Right? This, is, this is what he did. Nero was in charge when Paul wrote this letter. Nero was in charge when the Roman church received this letter. The government around them was actively seeking to make life difficult and in some cases physically harm Christians. But yet the scriptures here call for the church to submit to the ruling authorities because the ruling authorities are for your good. Think about that a minute. Paul's writing this letter. Let every person be subject to the, to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. But, but, but the government was seeking to physically harm these people. Yep. 
And Paul is still telling us, we are still commanded by the word of God to be subject to it and to submit to it because it's for our own good. He goes on to call the ruling authorities here a servant of God. And you are to be subject to them to avoid the wrath of God for the sake of your own conscience and for avoiding the wrath. So how in the world can Paul say this? How can Paul call on followers of Christ to submit to an oppressive government regime that that was actively persecuting the Christian community? How can he do that? Because Paul knows the sovereignty of God. And he knows the sovereignty of God much better than you and I really understand, and I think, the sovereignty of God. Paul knows the sovereignty of God because, one, he had experienced God's sovereignty on his own life big time. Paul was a persecutor of Christians on the road with arrest warrants to people in Damascus to arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem to to face trial. When the sovereignty of God reached out, smacked him, blinded him, and brought him to Jesus Christ. But Paul not only knows the sovereignty of God because of what it did in his own life, Paul knows it from the history of Israel. right? That God used the enemies of his people to draw his people closer to himself. Paul knows that God used Pharaoh, persecuting the Hebrews, to bring his people back to him so he could bring them to salvation in the promised land. Paul knows that God used the Babylonians and the Assyrians to bring about a remnant and to purify his people and bring them back to true worship. And Paul has faith and expects God to do similar works through the enemy, Roman government, for the good of the followers of Christ. He's expecting that. See, we're, we're really fortunate as American Christians. We don't have a state religion that we must adhere to or face prosecution. Right? It's not illegal for us to worship. Right? Believers are, are not being arrested for their faith. Even when we disagree with our government officials, we still have it pretty good. I, I, I know I'm going to hear complaints about, well, what about the shutdowns? We were still allowed to stream a worship service in multiple formats. That would be enough for somebody to arrest you in, North, in, in Vietnam, parts of China, North Korea, anywhere within many of the Middle Eastern countries, we still have it pretty good. Don't forget that. And the other thing for, not, for us to not forget is, is when we read this, Paul doesn't expect the government to be friendly and gracious to the church. He, he's, he's lumping them in. Do you notice that? that? That the paragraphs above are about enemies and he's lumping the government in with that? He doesn't expect the government to be friendly and gracious to the church and you shouldn't either. This doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't disengage from our government. It doesn't mean that, that we should do that, but, but the Christian should not place more faith in the events that happen on election day 
than they do in the Lord of all creation. Too often, there are those who call themselves Christians who are looking for salvation to come through Congress rather than salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone saves. And while I think the American system is the best government system available to us, it's important to note it's not perfect. It cannot be perfect. See, the fall of Adam... And the sinful nature of the world makes even the very best earthly option poor in comparison to what is to come in Christ. See, a government for the people and by the people, where the people are inherently sinful, will mean a government filled with inherently sinful people that will stray further and further from God. No matter what, folks, we step into that ballot box. We're always voting for the least evil. There's nothing we can do about it. See, we also need to remember that all earthly systems will fail. This is part of the plan and part of the path for the return of Christ. This should create in you an urgency to tell the gospel to as many people you know. The gospel is the only true hope we have for this world. It's the only thing we're going to come out of here with. right? And, and Paul concludes this, this section on interaction with the governing authorities, reminding the Christ follower to show respect and honor to ruling members. That's tough. Man, that... Because I get it. Many of our governing authorities and people that hold those positions are less than admirable. But this section of Scripture, within its context, is about loving your enemies. Blessing them in, in, in 12.14. Living harmoniously and peaceably with them in 12.16 and 18. Even feeding them and giving them water. In 1220, why? Oh my goodness, why on earth would you do that? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why. That's why. While you and I were enemies of God, he paid for our sins by sending Jesus, who willingly died in our place. If there was hope for you to have been reached by the gospel and saved from your rebellion, then you and I should hold out hope for those we disagree with politically. Instead of posting mean jokes and memes about them on social media, God is calling you to honor them by praying for their lost souls. Instead of using pejoratives and, and name-calling to describe them, God is calling you to honor them by remembering that He made them in His own image. God is calling on you to honor them even in disagreement so that those who revere them can see God's glory through you and be opened up to the gospel. Danny Aiken, who's president of the Southern Baptist Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary says this, and I, I love this, this quote. 
he says, I will say, as, so as a devoted follower of Jesus, I will say yes to obeying the government and paying taxes to Caesar. But I will say no to disobeying the word of God and worshiping a man or an institution. This, this last line. Independence Day for the Christian is not marked by a flag. No, our Independence Day is Easter, marked by a cross and an empty tomb. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but Jesus endures forever. In your dealings with politics and government, give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. See, we have seen how we are to love our enemies. And we have seen how we are to submit and honor our governing authorities. Now we're being called to to love our neighbors. Do you see a pattern here? (laughs) The word of God is calling us as believers in Christ to love people. Pay folks what you owe them financially. I love that, right? He, He says... Uh, verse 7 of 13 pay to all what is owed them taxes to to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed right pay off your debts right pay them what you owe them financially but always be indebted to them in love think about that be indebted to them in love you can never pay off your love debt So pay it out to any and all who you come in contact with. Be indebted to them in love. And and as Paul's talking about this, he brings up several Ten Commandments, several of the Ten Commandments here. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covenant. And then he says, and any others, right? In in case I've missed a few, I I guess. I I don't know why Paul says it that way. He says these are are all summed up in this way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar? It should, right? Jesus says the same thing. It's part of several sermons, not just the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of several different sermons that he preaches and are recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Jesus in those sermons is is quoting the Old Testament. And this is a common thread throughout Scripture that we were given this beautiful explanation about how that works in the verse, right? In verse 10, we look at that and it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. That all of the Old Testament law, all of the law of Christ, the whole point of all of the law of God and all of that he has blessed us with in scripture is that we love him then we love others and that we lead those others to his love (coughs) love fulfills all the law's demands and it fulfills the law of christ the whole point of all of that is to do that And Paul concludes this section, and he does it with this urgency. He longs and he hopes for the return of Christ, and he knows Christ will return soon. 
Besides this, you know the time and the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Man, he wants that return of Christ, and he knows Christ is returning soon, and he calls us to wake up. You're called to wake up. Put off any moral carelessness you have, any, any laziness you have, the day of Christ's return grows, grows closer and closer with each hour. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Man, wouldn't it be great to be gathered as a body of believers, worshiping, hear that trumpet, and be gone. Whew. His return is, is coming. We live too often as though that's down the road. Get ready for it. Be prepared. See, this, this goes back to what he's talking about in 12, 1 and 2 again. That, that you're called to conform to the mind of Christ, not to conform to the things of this world. The things of the world are darkness, and the mind of Christ is light. And, and there are these temptations that will always be appealing, even to the Christian. And, and many people Christ has brought out of these things, but they can still be tempted. But Paul is calling us to live for Christ over and over and over again. This is why, why you're called to cast them off and put on Jesus. It's a battle. It's a battle that you and I are waging. But Jesus is the one who guards us. Jesus is the one who fights for us. And, and if you are trying to wage a battle of your own accord, you walk into the battlefield already having lost. There's no way you can win it without Christ. It's Jesus who gives you the power to say no to sin and yes to God. And when you put him on, you take on his character. And when you put him on, you have personal fellowship with him. Your identity then becomes Christ and it's in him. You pursue holiness through him. <clears throat> this is what Paul's talking about when he says, make no provision for the flesh. You've been directed and you have directed your mind to the promises of God through Scripture. And you desire to be more like Jesus than being anything in this world. You desire the future with Christ more than you desire the future the world has to offer. And Jesus is the only thing that can gratify your desires. As, as we wrap up today, as we kind of close out, I want you to think about that. Are you allowing Jesus to be the only thing that gratifies your desires? Are, are you seeking to live in this manner that fulfills the law through love? That you're loving in a manner that others are going to go, something's peculiar. Can they see Christ in how you love as a follower of Jesus? Today, as, as we go into our time of invitation, I want you to think about that. Ask yourselves, where am I at? Is, where's God moving me to? What, what would he have me to do in response to this? Maybe you don't know Christ. You're saying, man, I, I, I would like to have that. There's just an emptiness. I'm not feeling any love in my life. 
He calls us to repent, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we come to Jesus Christ and say, look, I'm a sinner and I am broken and you're the only one who can fix me, he is faithful and just to do so. And if you've not done that yet, I ask that you would also consider that today. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how you are calling us to love. And to love in such a manner that it's, that it's only you, Jesus, who can gratify our desires. Father, I ask that as we enter into this time of reflection and response, you would continue to move in our lives and draw us close to you. Help us think of some, some action steps to take so that we may love better for your glory and for your kingdom.